Good afternoon and welcome to today's panel discussion on spotting investment opportunities in an uncertain world. My name is Max. I'm an MBA here at Oxford Said with a background in VC funded tech businesses. Uncertain world, what does that mean? Political uncertainty with unhealed scars such as Brexit. Uncertainty in the financial markets and volatility. Rapid change in technologies and shifts in financing trends, such as ICOs. That being said, I'm very pleased to welcome today's panel, Jenny Tooth, Chief Executive at UK Business Angels Association, Spencer Crawley, partner at First Minute Capital, Joe White, CFO at Entrepreneur First, and Stephen Morais at uh, Indigo Capital Partners. I'd like to start with the first question. The way we'll go from here is we move uh, to the left, starting with Jenny. <laughs> As for you, the investing landscape, both for VCs and angels in Europe, changed over the last years, and if so, how has it changed? So thanks, Max. Um, I think I've certainly seen some uh, some really big changes in the way that uh, angel. I'm particularly going to talk about the angel and early stage investing scene in that I've certainly seen um, the VC community doing bigger deals and going sort of further up the, the, the line in, in where they're starting to invest in uh, entrepreneurs. And I've also seen um, angels really filling that space and particularly through syndication doing bigger, bigger deals. Um, so I do think that we've seen some shifts in, in, in that um, angel investing has also grown um, in the last five or six years. Uh, there's been about 1.5, 1.6 billion uh, done through the tax breaks of EIS and SEIS here in the UK. Um, and I'm certainly aware of the growth of angel investing in other parts of Europe too. And indeed, seven other countries across Europe have, in this last five years, brought in tax breaks to support angel investing, which has really, again, helped kickstart a lot more angel investing generally across Europe. Um, what I think has also been interesting is that actually I do think that angels and VCs have been talking to each other a lot more than they did. And it's a very a heartening thing to see that we are being we are a much more connected uh, environment for risk capital than you might have seen a few years ago. Uh, we've seen many more co-investment funds, and we've seen many more deals being done between angels and VCs. And what's also been, of course, very important here in in the UK is that we've obviously seen a big rise in online investing and, and crowdfunding. Um, and that has really been, whilst it's been perhaps in some ways more competitive in other parts of uh, Europe, I think in the UK we really embrace that. And so we've seen a, a huge number of deals now being done between angels and crowdfunding platforms. Um, and just a, a quick stat, sort of 35% of angel deals have been alongside crowdfunding recently, and just generally seeing those connections uh, improving. So it's uh, in the UK, I would say it's an improving world. I think I still see a, a little less connectivity in other parts of Europe. Max, thank you, and thank you also for uh, having us. I'm personally thrilled to be here as a history undergraduate uh, and left in 2009, and the energy is brilliant. I love it here between the, the entrepreneurial centre here and the Oxford Foundry. Uh, it definitely didn't feel like this uh, when I left. I'm sure there's even future for history. <laughs> <laughs> just, 
about <laughs> juries out, but yeah. Um, but no, I think in terms of uh, to echo several things with Jenny, but the, the the landscape feels like it's shifted in a couple of ways, both in terms of uh, how many entities are investing, what the DNA of those entities are, uh, and where and where the capital's uh, coming from. And I think with us, so first minute capital we launched last summer. Uh, is, a, is a $90 million early stage uh, fund. Uh, and the composition of our investors is a mixture of, well, we have two institutions in, in Atomico and Tencent, uh, but we have a, a cluster of about 45 entrepreneurs, uh, about 11 or 12 family offices, and some uh, great executives who run uh, big businesses. And, and for us, it always felt like the, in the US, there are 350 micro VC funds, like under $100 million. That figure five years ago was 50. Um, I think Europe's going to see that same uh, inflation in terms of the number of entities that are investing uh, at early stage. You've obviously had, as Jenny said, the, all the SEIS and EIS funding has come from uh, lots of you know, largely successful bankers and otherwise in, in, in London. Um, but that's now, uh, you know, you, you're the seed, seed plus and early A ecosystem is growing really, really fast. Um, and then you are seeing other pools of capital. So family offices are a slightly kind of unknown uh, entity because they're quite discreet but they have a lot of industry weight and they want to put a lot more capital to work and that's from all stages and you see a lot of family offices setting up their own vehicles uh, you obviously have corporates much much more active uh, Brent uh, my, my co-founder in the first minute and the one who knows what he's doing um, he, uh, he co-founded Founders Factory which has six corporates behind them from L'Oreal to Aviva to many others um, so you have corporates playing a much much more active role um, you obviously have government which is interesting because the European venture scene is funded in a big way by EIF, uh, European Investment Fund. That may change with Brexit. Um, I don't know what the sentiment in this room is, but the tech community, at least in London, was, was vociferously and vehemently against Brexit um, for, for hopefully obvious reasons. Um, but let's see how that plays out. The British Business Bank may step in now. They've just created a vehicle called Patient Capital, which has about $2 billion, and Joe knows them much better than I do because uh, they got behind Entrepreneur first. Um, so you, I, think, I think what's interesting is, is if you combine all of those with the entrepreneurs and you've got, you've got these hubs, you have Skype that is a, you know, a big success and, uh, and they've spat, spat out many other brilliant founders at Target from TransferWise came out of Skype. You have the clients who went on to do Local Globe and Love Film and many others. You've got the same last minute where you know, Martha, who's on the board of Twitter with Biz, and you have Pete Flynn who went to America to found Trulia which is sold for three and a half billion dollars. So you've got, you've got early success stories now breeding other success stories and that capital and expertise is coming back into the ecosystem. So if you take that kind of mix, then there's a confluence there that I think is really exciting and it's also coming from a lot of different areas in Europe, which I'm sure we'll hear from more. So that's sort of my two cents. Great, um, thanks very much, everyone. Just a quick show of hands before I ask the question. How many people here want to be entrepreneurs? And how many people want to be VC or other investors? Some overlap there. How, how many are too embarrassed to answer the question? Either? Um, well, that's interesting. I mean, I'm glad to see so many, so many people want to be entrepreneurs in that. Uh, I mean, so when I founded my business, uh, I'm afraid, straight out of Cambridge in '98, uh, and went on the dot-com rollercoaster, there really wasn't much of a tech ecosystem in the UK in any meaningful way. Um, there weren't many people who'd been through the process. There wasn't a lot of capital around, there was, um, as the dot-com bubble inflated, there was a ton of dumb money that flooded into the ecosystem. And we took our best advice and a smart design from California. 
Um, we then went pop in the uh, dot-com bubble. We managed to buy the business back from our investors. And in those really dark days between 2002 and uh, 2008, we ground the business out the old-fashioned way. Um, and so when the, the wave started to rise again, and we eventually sold the business um, in, in, in 2012, mm-hmm. um, stayed into about 2014, building up about $150 million uh, sales. Uh, when I came back into the ecosystem at that point, it was a case of, man, a lot has changed since we started this journey uh, a long time ago. And it was at this point that I got involved in Entrepreneur First. And um, if you don't know EF, what EF does, which is uh, quite unusual, is that EF fundamentally asks the question, are the best people uh, becoming entrepreneurs? Um, in any given society, why is it that when Matt, who founded EF, um, studied at Cambridge and then at MIT, at Cambridge, very few people doing startups at MIT, everyone was doing startups. What was it about the UK and the way that we'd been set up that meant that the best and the brightest weren't aspiring to build these world-changing, uh, world-beating, uh, particularly tech companies, which have the ability to go from zero to enormous in, in a relatively short space of time? So EF was the kind of answer to that question. What it proposed to do is to take these extraordinarily uh, uh, intelligent, uh, academic, uh, uh, creative, um, ambitious people and catch them just before they take that job at Google or at Deutsche or at Goldman or at Kinsey or all these places and say, well, hold on a sec, what if you bet on yourself for the next six months? And so I think one of the changes I think that's happened in the ecosystem more broadly is you've had this general filling out of the ecosystem. There are many more firms, as Spencer has said. Uh, what the Valley has done so well for years and years is recycle entrepreneurial capital alongside financial capital. And I think in the UK, for the longest time, many of the VC have been from a financial services background they know how to raise and deploy, but they can't necessarily support the building of businesses. We have more entrepreneurs who have been through this cycle now who are putting their own money behind it again. Valley, as Spencer describes, you know, Brent's experience as an entrepreneur, coupled with financial experience, you, you've got exactly that within um, first minute. You have a lot more funds like that starting to happen. EF is a real focus point of entrepreneurship. We select um, from thousands of applications, 100 people that come together every six months. They form teams. Um, they're pre-idea, pre-team, purely selected on how uh, awesome we think they are. They need to have a personal competitive advantage that they bring into this, and they form teams we split throughout the ecosystem. The UK is now prepared to fund some of these companies in a way it may not have done uh, years before. These are often based in deep IP. This is stuff that might take years to come to fruition, but the price for doing so is enormous. And so I think that's another uh, a change in the ecosystem. It's not just the European version of something that's been going on in the valley for two or three years. And if we can get it to scale before they notice, then we're, uh, we've got a shot. It's actually stuff which is authentic, new technology, new paradigms coming out of uh, uh, areas here. So that, for me, is, is what I'm kind of excited about. And having been on quite a long, grueling uh, entrepreneurial journey myself, to, um, as Biz said, help people avoid many of the dumb mistakes that we made along that past, which passes as wisdom, um, and also put uh, uh, my capital and our capital back in Well, hello. It's a pleasure to be here. I was uh, I was very fortunate to have been here two years ago on an executive program. And I must tell you, I had a fantastic experience at, at Oxford. So it's a real, real pleasure to to be here again, uh, and now in a, in a different capacity, not as a student but as a as a mentor. Um, so I I'm, I run a VC in, in, in Portugal. I was until recently uh, heading up a corporate VC, which was the largest in the country that backed all the good companies that went on to raise a lot of money in in the valley and, and in London and then decided to become, again, an entrepreneur myself and launch my own fund, which I'm in, in the middle of uh, doing. And, you know, adding, trying to add a little bit to what has already been said, with, with which I agree uh, totally, I think what, what is really exciting about, about what's happening in, in Europe 
is that there's places like <coughs> Lisbon and Porto and Barcelona and Tallinn and Scan you know, Scandinavian uh, cities and Holland and pretty much everywhere, as long as you have good universities and good quality people engineering and, and really smart people. And, and nowadays you can see that innovation and good quality companies can come out of everywhere. I was here also in London uh, working uh, for the first, you know, for the dot com um, bubble. Uh, when it burst, I was already at, at Harvard, so there were no more limousines after the first semester. And um, and it is, you know, we've come a long way. We've come really a long way in, in Europe in general. I think that obviously London has become a, a mega center for Europe in terms of entrepreneurship, followed by Berlin and Paris. But it's really everywhere uh, right now. I can tell you that the, the latest company that we've decided to invest uh, is a blockchain company in, from a little city, you know, 150 kilometers north of Lisbon. It's, and it's a blockchain company where, you know, that is in fisheries and so on. So you, the exciting thing is that you can find talent everywhere. You have to be, as an investor, extremely close to these companies because quite often the entrepreneurial ecosystem in these smaller or uh, less developed ecosystems is not as strong. So the, the, the mutual development or the angel networks are not as strong. So as an investor, you need to be much, much more hands-on to make it work. And I always say that we work a little bit like football clubs. So, you know, we find the early, you know, the youngsters, the very promising players. We pull them up from their early teens until they become adults. And then we take them to the Champions League and we call our friends at, uh, you know, Chelsea or Manchester United and say, look, I have a new, you know, a new Ronaldo for you. What do you think? So you're, what we're seeing in Europe is you're seeing, you know, the development of good local ecosystems with good entrepreneurs, some starting to see some good angels, which are second time entrepreneurs, or become people that become investors, such as yourself, or one of my partners in, in the fund, a young woman, very successful. And you're starting to see good VCs locally, which are basically part of a supply chain that supply deal flow to bigger centers such as London, which eventually apply to the valley, even if less so, because we become also more and more competitive with, with the valley. And I can tell you, has also has an advisor to the European Commission on this matter, that Europe, despite you know Brexit, and let's see what, what happens with that, Europe is very, uh, and the Commission is very aligned with this objective of making Europe extremely competitive and raising the level both of knowledge and of capital adequacy and funding for <coughs> European funds. Because we do have still, we're still, the average European fund is still half the size of, of a US fund. And this is an issue, but the good thing is that we're all conscious about it and that we see throughout Europe. Thank you. Excellent. London is seen as the fintech capital, with countless investors and entrepreneurs getting excited about blockchain and applications, for example, in supply chain, in ICOs or cryptocurrencies. My question to you is, do you believe this is a hype that will hit the floor at some point, or do you believe this is a new gold mine that the industry discovered? Before asking all of you, I would like to see um, a quick hand up from the audience, though, for who thinks it is a hype. All right, who thinks it's a gold mine? Could you, could you repeat the question? Yeah. Um, the question was, is that if um, blockchain is believed to be a hype, um, or if it's a gold mine that the industry discovered? Over to you. 
I will not profess to be an expert, and I think you did actually mention fintech as well, because I think we need to be careful that we're not only referring to blockchain as part of fintech, so I will move on to that in a moment. Um, I think in terms of fintech, it has actually bred some really fantastic uh, disruptive businesses um, over the last few years, and certainly ones that um, the investment and early stage uh, community have been really uh, pleased to back. Uh, indeed, you've got TransferWise here um, speaking, which is a, an absolutely prime example of, um, of, a, of a really disruptive fintech business. And indeed, all of our crowdfunding platforms, crowdfunding and many of our, our leading ones, um, it, it have really been fantastic disruptors in, in the fintech um, area, which we, you know, really very supportive of. And angels have really seen the opportunity there, mainly because a lot of angels themselves have come out of the city and brought city money during that kind of early 2012. So I do think fintech has uh, continued to really offer uh, a huge opportunity, especially for London, but other capital cities. I think if you're going to talk in, then moving on to blockchain, um, I do think it's kind of early days. We've actually got a whole group of angels called blockchain angels, would you believe, that, um, that are investing in, in this space here in the UK. But I, I'm actually terribly keen that we do not absolutely obsess with blockchain being part of just about cryptocurrency and, um, and fintech, because actually blockchain has huge opportunities for applications across a, a very wide number of sectors, which is starting to be explored by, by other entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that we you know that that's I think it's at the starting point of opportunities. I actually don't see the hype yet for blockchain because I think it's been unexploited yet. Um, I think it's got a long way to go. Um, whether there's going to be a bit of an exhaustion around fintech among angels, I think is a little bit of a possibility. Um, but I, I would certainly um, still hold my hand up around blockchain and saying, as an as an investor and among my fellow investors. I think we're just beginning to identify the opportunities that are um, linked to the whole kind of data area. And we were just talking actually a little bit over lunch, saying that um, actually in uncertain times and with the changes um, in our, our distancing from some of the kind of uh, constraints of some of the areas uh, of European legislation, actually blockchain has uh, some very, very exciting uh, global opportunities. So I, I'm, I'm uh, still on the side of... Uh, not yet um, uh, uh, exploited and still a long way to go on that one. So I, I think on the, on the cryptocurrency front, the price action is far ahead of where the technology actually is. And I think that it's interesting, not per se, because of, it's not a great store of value because it's super volatile and it's not great for transacting because it can't process much very quickly. Um, so I wouldn't be, I don't hold any cryptocurrency and I wouldn't buy any now. Um, what the reason is interesting is the underlying technology and as a first use case for what blockchain can do. Um, it's interesting, I mean, I think we, we had our first investor day last week at, uh, and uh, we had uh, Arik, who's our venture partner, standing at the back over there with the sort of the Jeff Bezos style gilet. And he, um, he, uh, he, he's launching, he was at Index Ventures and launching a blockchain fund this year. And he was in conversation with Rana Yarrow, who's an amazing woman who runs Goldman's 
uh, principal strategic investment arm out of New York, and she was saying the thing that gets Goldman excited about blockchain is the really unsexy things. And it's, it's for instance, she, she mentioned the Australian stock exchange that's now using blockchain technology to reduce the uh, time for a trade to clear. So instead of T plus two, as they call it, 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 it all goes through in, 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 in a matter of hours. Um, so I think there's a lot of use cases that are uh, that are not necessarily the uh, the most exciting and will get the most press, but are really interesting. I, I, for fintech, I think um, there is a chance, uh, and, I, and I know this is certainly Eric's view, that the blockchain could do to financial services what the internet did to re retail uh, and the kind of growth of e-commerce, i.e. cutting out a lot of middlemen. Um, and that whole decentralized play is really, really interesting. Um, I think, I think the talent front is another area. If you look at how many people, and I've already met a couple of people today who are founding great businesses in blockchain, and the number of people in the US, the, the, the talent magnet that blockchain is today, you look at like the Teal Fellowship that, that Peter Teal set up, how many of them dropped out of those fellowships to then go and found blockchain businesses. You look at Y Combinator, how many people are building stuff in blockchain there. There's, there's a, there's, for me, there's something in that. If you've got a lot of really, really smart people uh, around the world focusing their attention and committing their futures to a new type of technology, whether it becomes like an, an overlay or it becomes, you know, I think how how it evolves, uh, I don't know. Um, we've we've made a couple of uh, investments in the area. One is a New York-based business called Templum, which is looking to be the first SEC-regulated uh, platform for ICOs. Uh, we've made an investment in a business called Luther Systems. Uh, that's working with insurance to uh, streamline their claims processes. It's a, it's a fork ledger, and uh, the founder is saying it's, uh, it's brilliant. Uh, and we've got one that's, uh, VCs like saying this, in stealth. Um, and it's a, it's a wallet, it's a crypto wallet, but then wants to go and do other things and uh, provide banking services to, uh, to people who hold crypto. So um, we'll see. I, I think that there's probably... Uh, hard to argue against there being some really significant blockchain businesses in the next few years, but um, I'll see if Joe disagrees. Disagree entirely. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I, mean, I think it is good to separate out the, the, the blockchain businesses from the kind of cryptocurrency, crypto asset pieces, and then there's probably a third category of people who are selling shovels, um, and that's the Coinbase and the other wallet people and some other enablers of this whole market. And so things like Coinbase, which you know is, is apparently... Uh, doing sort of a billion dollars in revenue uh, uh, based on these transaction fees per month is pretty extraordinary. Um, some of these things will pop. I mean, there are there are shades of dot-com bubble about this piece and having lived through that in a very visceral way, I can tell you. Um, it felt similar and it felt pretty ugly at the end. Um, some things I agree will come out of it. Um, we have three uh, uh, companies related to this space in the current EF batch coming to our next demo day. Um, one is using uh, the blockchain uh, as a ledger for a separate corporate bond trading, which is otherwise quite a um, mysterious and murky market. One is providing an ability to uh, invest in funds that will allow you to take a position across many different crypto assets. So again, slightly selling shovels, but allowing you to get broad-based exposure without making your own choices. Uh, and then there's a third, which is um, while the blockchain is technically public, it's not exactly easy for any of us to interrogate it and to know whose private keys are which ones and so on. So they're doing an information layer on top of that. So all, all enabling companies at one sort or another, I think some of those businesses will do very well. Um, in terms of the cryptocurrencies themselves, uh, hard to say. I mean, I think, you know, Bitcoin as a store of value, maybe as a payment mechanism, probably not. There might be some payment mechanism, the idea of something which can allow international payments to go through all these systems, and which is far more 
instantaneous and verifiable seems to make sense. I'm not sure we've quite got there yet. Um, blockchain as a, as a ledger, I think definitely um, uh, there is something in that, and there'll be a bunch of businesses which we could benefit from it. There'll all be network effects, as in everybody has to adopt the same blockchain to get there. And so I think there'll be a lot of stuff started in the space. There'll be some winners over the next few years. Picking through them at this point, I think, will be quite tricky. Um, things on the positive side, um, I was in California at the end of last year with Reid Hoffman, who uh, led around into Entrepreneur First uh, at the end of the summer. And one of the things he was saying is the core of this market is, is that some of the smartest people he knows are now working in this space. And I think uh, when the smartest people start to migrate into these spaces, it's not quite clear what's going to happen, but you'll bet on the smartest people figuring something out. It's like future biz. They can figure out the smart, the smart people will make this happen. It'll be obvious later. Um, the flip side of that is some of the dodgiest entrepreneurs I know are um, <laughs> looking at ICOs right now. And so um, I think you know, Mark Kenny's recent um, entry into the market of saying we need to regulate the space. I think there's a lot of dodgy stuff happening in ICOs at the moment. I think that there's, this is, I'm not sure whether it's bordering on fraud or just outright fraud. I mean, something like a, a third of all the ICOs that have gone out so far have already failed. I think there's a lot of people who don't quite know what they're buying. There's certainly not any kind of security against the company's assets. It's just a, a kind of a, a vaporware coin that you can buy. Some of them may work, some of them they'll be a real mess. So, um, no, I, just, just on the ICOs, I think Thursday there was something really significant. Sorry to interrupt. Thursday, that the uh, in the SEC's enforcement division, they created they have a cyber unit they created last year, uh, and they issued a lot of subpoenas to a lot of uh, companies that issue ICOs. That could be a really significant watershed moment. Um, uh, we were working a little bit on the Telegram ICO, and that it, it might be a moment where you look back and think, "Wow, a business raised eight hundred fifty million dollars, and then probably another billion plus um, without giving up any equity stake in the business." Um, uh, obviously, the tokens will uh, they'll issue and, and they'll hopefully have value. And Telegram could do something really extraordinary and have a, a platform for authenticated users, and, and, and it, it could be hugely disruptive. But there's there's a chance that the most kind of bubble hype moment will be will, will, will be the ICOs and the number of businesses we've seen that are issuing tokens for no good reason. Uh, there's no link to the utility of the token and what they're trying to do. Um, but you see founders who, I've got a great friend who's a, one of the most brilliant people I know, sitting in Moscow, he just raised $41 million for an ICO. Um, you know, his business is at seed stage, but he now has, he's converted most of it into fiat, and now he's hiring old friends of his who used to be hedge fund managers to go manage, uh, do treasury management for his startup. He has, you know, 30 of the 40 in USD now. And, and that, that wouldn't last. I mean, that's a, this, is, this is a short window of fraud that you can get into if you're really fast. You may need to drop out, as Biz recommends, and do that quickly. Um, just the last point that I will disagree with Spencer on is um, I do hold some cryptocurrency, and, and partly why I hold them is because I want to experience the pain and joy of holding them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the same reason, um, uh, uh, having sold my business, when thinking, will I be an entrepreneur again, will I be an investor again? Um, being an entrepreneur is putting yourself at risk. The first thing I decided to do was start angel investing to put myself at risk again, and that way you can start to get the feedback loops pretty, pretty quickly. Um, so putting my own money into cryptos allows me to go, oh, well, that's pretty painful when I'm thinking about this. Um, I'm up, thanks. But um, it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not in the Lamborghini club or anything like that, nor do I hope to be. But anyway, maybe I'll ask one. So that's actually a good question. Who has invested in any cryptocurrency here? What about ICOs? Who has put money into ICOs? Fewer people. Fewer people. Okay. I, I have some crypto. Not, not a lot. Just, just a little, just to understand the process. 
I haven't done any ICO, but I need to do it to understand the process as well, although I believe that the process will, will change because of, of regulation. Again, I think that it's important to split. I think there's three different things going on. One is, you know, cryptocurrencies. There's lots of cryptocurrencies. And again, if you can't, if you can't turn them into fiat, if you can't pay with them, and if the transaction speed is not, not fast enough, they, don't, they will not hold as currency or as source of value. Although we are seeing more and more cryptos being put up on the market, which are faster to transact and so on. So I think some, something will happen. And, and I, certainly regulation will help. Uh, and and I, I wouldn't advise you against investing completely in, in cryptocurrency, but as always, you need to have you know, a broad basket of currencies that, that you trade, and, and you shouldn't sort of invest more than what you're willing to, to lose. The other thing that is completely different, in my view, is the blockchain technology. So there's a lot of, lot of companies which will uh, benefit, uh, and a lot of sectors which will be disrupted by blockchain. <coughs> But again, this will take time to play out. It's complicated. It will take time for you know to turn uh, fisheries, for, for that matter, into sort of a ledger uh, registration technology that, that disrupts markets globally and retail and, and, and fishery, fishing boats and fleets and so on and so on. The third thing is this is, is the ICOs, and I'd like to maybe add a couple of, of different uh, ways of looking at, at it. Uh, in addition to what you've already said, which, which I agree completely, most of it is a scam and so on. If there's a small window of opportunity for people to make money, and some, and I know some that have made tons of money, right? And maybe they'll fail, but they've kept already millions in their bank account. So it's fine, right? As long as nobody goes after them, which some people are starting to go after some of these people also. Not now. good lessons. Not good lessons, right? But but it's it, it did happen, and there, there's lots of Lamborghinis and, and, and other things. Now, the thing is, there's two types of <coughs> ICOs nowadays, sort of like utility tokens and security tokens. And precisely what's happening now is that the SEC and, and other regulators are going to try to say that every token uh, issuance will be considered <coughs> a security token, right? which means that it will attract much more regulation. Theoretically, it will make it safer. So connected to that, and, and by the way, the majority of exchanges nowadays don't accept security tokens because they don't want to attract regulation. So everybody pretends to sell some sort of a pre-sale of their product and call it a utility token. And therefore, you know, you have no claim except that you have bought a token that will allow you to, you know, to spend that token in the network itself. It's except that sometimes, most of the times, there is no network because there is no business because it's basically a PowerPoint, right? And that would never fly with VCs or investors like us. So in the end, the, this opportunity will, will correct itself. But the, the question is, and, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, is like just has it happened with crowdfunding, people ask us, so will this disrupt VC? Are they going to kill, are ICOs going to kill professional investing? I think yes and no, because in the end, when this bubble sort of dies down or explodes or you know, anything happens, in the end, when you're investing in early stage companies, when you're an angel or, or an early stage VC, and even you know, a later stage VC, but less so, you really, really need to be very close to your companies. You really, really need to be sharing your knowledge, trying to coach and to learn and to develop the product, the team, and so on. And you can't get that with, with an ICO of 20 million when you, know, when you really need only 200,000. And to a certain extent, crowdfunding has the same problem. When it, if it's too early, unless you're a B2C business that really requires a lot of publicity and so on, you're better off taking you know, a good experienced angel or a good early stage VC as opposed <coughs> to crowd money, whether it's crypto or, or non-crypto. 
where I see that potentially future ICOs might play an important role is actually on later stage VC or later stage rounds. Because there, once you already have your company up and running and you've had 20 or 30 or 50 million of institutional capital that has really developed your early stage company into a, a good, sound, cash flow producing company, then if it's just a question of further capital, there, you know, the ICO model could be very interesting because it provides non-dilution for existing shareholders, <coughs> including the VCs, which will, you know, the early stage VCs will be very keen on getting more capital without being diluted. So I think that there is a potential for, for, for ICOs or some sort of crypto fundraising um, on a later stage. On the other stage, has it been done now? I really don't think so. Thank you. In today's environment, would you rather invest in a business with low user attraction and good revenues, or with low revenues but good <coughs> user attraction? Yeah, okay. You start with this, Dave. Yes, you can only get better up the line. Um, obviously, as an angel, I'm I'm really starting at that very early stage anyway, and I, I what I'm really looking for, I do look for uh, traction. Um, I'm not that interested yet in, in, in revenues. I'm often investing pre-revenue or in that very early stage of revenue, but I do look for traction. Um, I look for evidence of, of, of certainly achievements, um, and it's often the very, one of the very first things I, I look at and, and ask for. And that's because actually you can achieve a tra traction with your business at any point in, in from that very early starting point, you can start to really demonstrate some data points and some things that really you can evidence to, to, to me as an angel. Um, and that can be some very early beta testing, so you can start to get some real evidence of, of interest and, and, and usage and, and user interest. You don't need to have been selling yet, but I certainly want to know that uh, you've got potential customers who would want it, who need it, and would buy it in, in due course. But I also look to see kind of what else you've achieved. You know, in other words, what other kind of interest have you drummed up? That could even be general interest uh, around you, your community, that has started to get you some recognition. I look to see really what you've put into that business. I see that as traction too. I see that actually what you've started to build and the time and effort and maybe put some of your own funding um, into that. I, I see all that as part of that whole traction piece. So I look to see that you can really demonstrate to me uh, a really strong sense of uh, a commitment and achievement um, and external interest and opportunity. And I, I look for that far more than I do uh, the revenue, which I believe will, will come on the basis of the fact we've started to really move that. And traction, for me, is really, really starting to move that engine. Um, and that's what I would see far above uh, uh, you know, a, a low traction and a, and a high amount of sale. I'm not quite sure how that goes together anyway, but um, that's certainly my view on things as, a, as an angel. Completely. Uh, I think user traction, build something people love, product evangelism, uh, and in time you'll, you'll work out how to monetize to solve, solve for growth. So I'm firmly in the former camp. Um, I, I agree with that. I mean, you know, traction is always desirable in all cases, so um, if you can have some, have some. Um, I think there's a slight distinction here for me between sort of B2B businesses and B2C businesses in that if you're a B2C business and you've got high user traction but no revenue, that's not an insurmountable problem and that's, that's in fact the, you know, that's the Twitter solution, right, and, and many of the other massive consumer startups. If you're a B2C business and you don't have any traction, you don't have any revenue, this is, 
serious problem. If you're a B2B business and you've got some early income but not a lot of user traction, that's less of a problem depending how much income you have for that user. And therefore, can you, uh, do you have enough that you can enable a sales force which can then solve that user traction problem later? So it is a little bit different in the way that you might, might look at these things. But I mean, I, I agree completely with what James said is, you know, if you're selling your business, you need to define what your own traction is um, in a way that's credible and demonstrable to your investors because it may not look to the outside world like you have these users or you have these, these customers. Um, Magic Pony, which is one of our EF companies, which was acquired by Twitter for $150 million 18 months after leaving EF, had no revenue and no customers. And people said, well, okay, well, why is that worth so much money? And their traction was actually the amount of patents they were pumping out. It was the quality of the, the 10 PhDs they had working, working on the topic. They actually had a huge amount of industrial interest um, for what they were doing. Um, and they were in that sweet spot of, um, you know, highly qualified AI teams <coughs> coming out of the UK, which you know, one of the areas that we're very strong in. Um, so I think you know you need to be able to describe what your own traction is and convince people that this is what's going on. And you can demonstrate hard factors, of course, better. But um, you know, and if you have no traction, problem. Well, it's, it's kind of difficult to add to all this um, to all these comments. But let me put it in a, in, a, in a different way. What we really look for is is obviously you know whether the the, the problem you're trying to solve is really big, and uh, because we are sort of post-product pre-revenue uh, fund, uh, quite often we're, we're companies that we invest don't have any revenue or have just a little bit of revenue or, or have some pilots. What we want to see is whether the customers, particularly if they're B2B, how do the customers um, you know, relate to the company and to the product and whether it solves really their problem or not. Whether we can see a pattern that can be replicated in, in, in other situations and globally with other B2B customers. And Ultimately, once once you're convinced that you have, you know, a good solution uh, for a big problem, um, and, and that you know it's a defensible solution in the sense that it can't be copied easily by other um, competitive existing or future um, companies and products, then what we really look for is whether we can work with the team, um, and and this ultimately, you know, the the, the companies that that have failed in the past in our investments. It almost had to do exclusively with the team, with the team not being able to adapt, not being able to pivot, or not being able to work with us in, in a partnership and, and, and getting feedback and learning with each other. Um, so it depends if it's B2B or B2C. Um, if we could choose, we would have both things, right? Traction and revenue, obviously. But sometimes that's not that's not possible, and that's not the best way to monetize and, and, and to grow. Um, but in the end, you know, the team is just just so much more important because if you have the right team and people that you can work with and that you can uh, sort of consult with, and, and if you can help them grow as a team in terms of skills and in terms of, of uh, rapport with the investors, everything can be solved. Um, but um, but you, you can't replace that, even if the idea is great. You already mentioned team, and we'll start on your side for the next question. <laughs> uh, in an uncertain environment, what kind of characteristics would you look for specifically in a CEO? So, so why, the reason why, and I can tell you, for example, we've seen about 400 companies, <coughs> mostly out of Portugal, because that's where we're based since, since September. So it's quite a lot of companies, and we've... We, we're, we're ready to pull the trigger on, on three or four of those. So that's about 1% of the companies we've seen. 
And when we filter the whole thing and we come down to the team, um, we really need to see a balance between ambition and, and, and humbleness. And that is very, very hard to, to, to find. Because the teams, particularly when you're in a small uh, market or a non-existing local market like Portugal or any other small, you need the team, the team needs to be global-minded, needs to go for the big markets immediately from day one. Um, you know, no, someone that comes in and says, oh, I want to conquer just this little part of the world, doesn't work, right? So they need to be very, very aggressive and very focused on growth and, 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 and going after the big markets and against the big boys and so on. At the same time, they need to be psychologically ready to be working with other people like ourselves and other investors and other partners and clients that will give them feedback. And, and, and these are people that will need to take that feedback incorporated and change. And this is a very hard characteristic to find. So I'm not even questioning that they need to be smart and they need to be able to code and to you know, think about marketing and sales and, and so on. That's a given. Um, but it's more of a psychological analysis. And what we do really, and, and this is probably the time that it takes us longer to decide, it's because the team might fail the first call with us or the first in-person meeting because the product is rubbish or, or it's really not a big problem or it's not a big market. But for us to decide, we need a few weeks and many meetings and a, lot of, a little bit of work and even possibly doing the business plan together and so on. Because that's when you're really testing whether you can work with, this, with these people very close. That's the real test. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> so at EF, because we literally invest in people pre-idea, pre-company, this is something we think about a huge amount. Um, when we're inviting people onto the program and interviewing for it, we really look for three three major things. Um, one is being super smart, and this is often signaled by having been to one of the, the great uh, uh, universities or institutions. Um, unfortunately, that's not enough in its own right. We're looking for people who have a seriously fast clock speed. They can learn, they can pick things up, they can adapt, and they can do things with it. Um, working hard is definitely an important part of it, but we want not just a, a selection of uh, uh, people who have got the right badges, but the people who are actually the smartest of that group. The second thing we look for is, is a personal competitive advantage, which we call edge. So it's what is it that you're bringing into this? What do you know that nobody else knows? Um, why will you win in a business situation against somebody else uh, uh, when, when they might otherwise? And this is often a technical skill, so probably 80% of the people we bring on the program are engineers of one sort or another. Uh, sometimes it's industry, sometimes it's some other personal characteristic related to you or your life or your family or your background. Um, it's not that I like shoes, I want to build a shoe company. If you, were, if you worked in the shoe industry for five years or your family owned a shoe business and blah, 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 maybe. Um, but more likely you've studied this thing particularly. And the final thing is these, is these characteristics, um, which, which echoes some of the points that Stefan was saying. Um, we're looking for the kind of things which, will, which we believe are important for being an entrepreneur. And this is about uh, resilience, it's about a certain amount of commerciality, um, it's, it's, it's a amount of creativity. And when we try and separate out these super smart academic people um, who want to actually be academics and the super smart academic people who actually want to be commercial, so this bit is hugely important. EF has an astonishingly high failure rate, which is part of its charm. So with 100 people that might start a program, only about one quarter of those will end up in companies funded by the external market raising more than a million of VC money, which means 75% of people on that process will not make it. And the reasons they don't make it are varied. Um, but one of the characteristics we look for is personal exceptionalism. 
which means that if I tell you that these are the stats, you will tell me that that doesn't matter because you're one of the 25, in which case, great. Um, and you may or may not be, we'll find out. And um, we then have an opportunity to work with these people for about six months. And um, one of the pieces of inspiration we drew was that the, the, the Google, um, uh, 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 whatever it's called, work, work rules book, which talks about the weak correlation between interview and job success. The best kind of proxy of whether you can succeed in your job is a job test. We effectively get a six-month job test of entrepreneurship, which is a, a slightly grueling experience involving customer development, writing tech, being harassed by people like me, uh, and so on. And so if, if you love that, you will love being an entrepreneur, and those people are in the group that end up succeeding. If you don't love that, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you don't love that, in which case you really don't do that. And sometimes we have to persuade people who have wanted everything they've done in their lives. They don't want to win at this, because clearly they look like they're in such pain. It's like the prize for winning this is more of this. Please don't do it. Um, um, but they then go and work in you know, other companies or so on. So at the end of it, it is about the individual. Um, the individual converts that to traction over time. Then you can bet on the company traction later. But at the earliest stage, it's about the individual characteristic. I would just add that the, we see a lot of companies come out of the F and the caliber of people that Joe and, and Matt and Alice put pulled together is incredibly strong. Um, uh, so any people who are either looking for founders uh, or co-founders rather than have an idea or don't have an idea, um, but, but feel they're cut out for it, I, I really can't recommend the F more highly. I really mean that. Um, but on, uh, it, it's really, really subjective. And I think as, a, as an early stage investor, you're very aware that you will not invest in lots of great businesses and many more than you do invest in. Um, since we've started, we've seen a similar number of businesses and we will definitely have said no to businesses that will go on to be really big ones. Um, so I think as a, as a venture investor, you're constantly questioning your own uh, subconscious biases. You're constantly second guessing yourself, uh, sort of, you know, almost kind of quasi-existential experience. Um, but what I think the things that we try to come back to again and again are probably maybe four main things, not exhaustive, of course, but resilience, and I'll come back to that. Can you hire great people? Can we help you as a, as, a, as a fund, as a team? And have you built a credible story around what you're doing? Um, and if I go back to each of those, resilience is... is uh, is so important because it's such a hard thing to build, it's such a gravity-defying thing to be building a startup. Um, and, you know, we, we spent two and a half hours yesterday in a third-party fulfillment centre in North London um, in, a, in a slightly unusual dynamic where the two co-founders actually just hired a new CEO. For us, that's normally always a red flag where you back the founders, you back the founders. Uh, but the metrics on this business are really interesting. It's making a lot of money. It's making... It's Monthly revenue is 100k, and, and they'll they'll get a Series A away. We think this year, um, and but the question we kept coming back to the new CEO who was McKinsey and blah 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 was resilience and how 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 are you going to stay in this in this business when the tough when when the going gets really tough, which it already has done and will do even more so. And just you know, there's so much uncertainty in early stage. The founders don't know what they're doing. The investors definitely don't know what they're doing. You know, so so if you don't believe that the founders are going to run through walls. And has something has has a chip on their shoulder has a, has a, has just something that they're driving at why they're doing this thing um, then the chances of them failing which are already really high become even more so so resilience probably the number one thing the number two thing for us is is 
you know, a question we often ask ourselves, would we go and work for them? If we were 21, 23, 25, would we go and work for that person? Um, and again, really subjective, but do you think that they're inspiring? Do you think what they're doing is, are they going after a huge market? Have they got that ambition, that vision, that, that authenticity? Like why are they doing it? Um, uh, and then the third one, as an investor, we do try to think, can we help you? You know, we see a lot of businesses from, you know, we've invested in three in the US, one in Israel, uh, the rest have been in the UK or, or Germany. We've seen two great businesses out of Portugal we're looking at really closely at the moment. Um, but they have to be specific. Can we, can we help you as a business development opportunities with corporates? Is it hiring a great advisory board? Is it um, connecting you to later stage investors? Like we want that. If we're going to invest in a business now, 2018, we'll probably hopefully be around and they'll be around in 2028. Um, so it's a long-term relationship. And the final one about credibility, which Brent mentioned earlier with uh, with, with Stone is have they got great people surrounding them? Have they, have they built an advisory board? Have they got one use case that is really compelling? You know, Max, to your earlier question, I think, you know, my view is you shouldn't solve to monetize if it's at the expense of traction or the expense of people uh, uh, loving your product. So I think that picking up signals of momentum of what have they done in the last year, who have they gone to, how have they achieved this, it's intangible often, but I think that uh, those glimpses of credibility are really important. Um. Thank you. Um, I agree with obviously all, all, all the points they made, but I think there's something that I think has been missed out that I in particular look for, which is actually, um, I actually look for diversity in the teams. I actually look for women founders in those teams. And uh, that's not just because I'm a woman and I really am committed to seeing a lot more women entrepreneurs but because I actually believe that when you have uh, that mixture in the team, and particularly that mindset of both men and women coming together, um, and especially having women involved there, um, right from as, as co-founders, I do think you see a fantastic dynamic. I think you naturally have that resilience uh, and that ability to really um, be flexible and uh, very creative. So um, I'm especially interested when I see a diverse team. I obviously especially interested when I see women um, as part of the, either the founder or the co-founders. Co um, and I do think that it's something that we as investors need to look for and encourage more. So I do encourage you, and there's quite a few women in the room here, but uh, if, you're, if you're the blokes, you should really think of um, teaming up and really exploiting what you both bring to the table as, as, as founders. So um, I obviously agree with all of that, but I do think it's something as a consideration that we as investors need to make uh, more. Uh, and I know um, that um, some of my angel counterparts are definitely doing this. So um, it's just, a, I think it's something we should all bring to the table here. Thank you. At this point, I'd like to open up the discussion to the audience. Questions? Um, I would just like to find out why do they refer to the art of valuation for startups when there's such a high failure rate for startups in the end? Shouldn't it be more of a science um, in trying to figure out what makes great startups? <laughs> so, for valuation for seed stage is. is in general, is a back-solving question. It's okay, how much money do you need to survive the next 18 months? Because things will go wrong and you don't want to be fundraising again in nine months' time. So for us, we won't invest in a company unless it has 18 months runway. 
then how much of the business are you willing to give up, slash how much do the investors want, and the market will tell you and give you an indication, and there's a valuation. That's how we think about it. Is, was, that, was that sort of your question of why? It's more yeah. like the prediction rates for success, because you know, like sure. a lot of startups fail, if you can work it out early on, but it seems yep. like a lot of it's like gut feeling, like I feel this business will work, and then it doesn't work. Well, I mean, that's fundamentally the VC's business model, right? So the individual valuation, I mean, what you, what you learn, I mean, as I've moved sides of the table and, and so on, is, is that the, the VC's own business model is based on earning a certain amount of your company. Because if they end up earning less than they expect and you have to be the big winner, then their model doesn't make sense. So they, I mean, as Spencer Riley says, it's about solving problems for the individual deal. But then it's a basket-solving problem for whether this is going to make uh, a return to the overall fund. And so um, there's a huge failure rate. I think the latest CV Insight stats on failure through the funds are 75% of companies that get seed funded will die. Um, and there's about a sub 1% unicorn rate at the moment, whatever that means. Um, and so the VCs need to be mindful of this and need to build their, their thesis and strategy around that. That's kind of, the, are you interested in entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur or a VC? Or? Sort of both. Sort of both, okay. So either way is fine. But so as a VC, you'll need to know that's the problem you're trying to solve for. And I think the challenge we've had in UK VC for a long time is, is that VC works on VC outlier returns, but much of the early UK funds have been investing in like PE light kind of deals, and they want to see more traction, more revenue early on. Um, there's not as much risk taken in it, and then we won't get as many of these large upside cases as you might otherwise do, in which case the whole VC model breaks, because you don't, you never get the outlier which makes the whole fund make sense if you, if you don't take big enough risks early on. That, but that's changing now, that, that is working. But, you know, the value of an individual seed deal is precisely that. Um, we've got better in this country at knowing that if you take too much of a business early on, you're crippling the cap table for later rounds. It used to be that angels wanted 30, 40, 50% of a business. It makes the business uninvestable past a certain stage. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty standard now that a seed deal will be somewhere between 15 and 25%. And where you land on that spectrum is based on how much market their demand is for you. So if you go out and you say, I'm raising a million quid, chances are your pre-money is three or four. Um, it's going to be four if there are five VC competing. It's going to be three if there are not. Um, and uh, the numbers vary with that. So that, that, that's certainly in our experience. We have time for one very short last question. Um, I actually asked you this question last night, um, which I might not easier. Um, so I don't want to hear about your successes. I don't want to hear about your failures and things that you invested in. I want to hear about the ones that got away. Um, so the ones that you should have invested in, which you didn't invest in, and why you didn't invest in them. Thank you. It's, uh, it's always really interesting, isn't it, to kind of think of, uh, of, of the ones you, you didn't do and why you didn't do it at the time. But um, um, I was actually one of the people who, um, who uh, didn't invest in innocent drinks, actually, um, because we were, I was very early on when uh, they came and pitched to us when I was with London Business Angels. And... Um, I don't know whether you know, you do know the story about the innocent drinks where you, you had to commit whether you liked the drink and you thought they should give up their day job. So I was kind of part of this little group of interesting testing angels. Um, and I did like the drink, but I didn't invest. I didn't tell them not to give up the day job, but I didn't actually go in and invest at that time. Um, so it is one of my regrets, because obviously they did rather well being sold for... 
to Coca-Cola for you know 40 million, and I would have done rather well out of that. So I'm afraid I failed the test quite early on. If it makes you feel better, Jenny, Richard Reed Innocent Drinks Founder was at our investor day last Thursday, and he told a story of how uh, they saw Purple Bricks, which, as many of you know, is a listed company. I forget the market cap, one or two billion now. And he saw it at C stage at three or four million dollars, and all three uh, male partners were out, and their one female partner was firmly in, uh, and they passed. And he was saying this was an example of, of, of one of their big misses. Um, but for us, we, we, we had one really early, like almost a week after we launched, where um, someone applied to the first minute. Uh, through building a website, and the website was www.firstminuteneedselliot.com. Um, and um, Elliot is now our superstar um, analyst, and First Minute definitely does need Elliot now. But um, at the time, he built a website, and he had three businesses that he said recommended, and one of them was called Cytora, and C-Y-T-O-R-A. And he said he loved it because all his smartest friends were there. And he built a business when he was 19, selling coding courses to universities um, while he was at uh, LSE, and got it to about a million uh, revenue business. Um, and so we hired Elliot, we were just a bit slow, we missed it anyway, eventually joined. And then we all went and visited them in their offices. Uh, and it was the day after they received a term sheet from Hank Greenberg, who used to run AIG, and had three other strategics and seven other term sheets all on the table. And we didn't know that much about the business, except they'd had brilliant, brilliant people, which was already a good sign for us. Um, so that was sort of a, a galling first week of feeling like you might have missed a very early uh, big business, but uh, there will be many more of those to come. So. Very good question. Unfortunately, we're due to close the panel now. I would like to say a very, very big thank you to our panelists. <laughs>